I spoke to the Prime Minister today. As you know, Athens is in the throes of a military coup. Yes. The Foreign Office view is that we should send a plane to bring your mother to England to live here with us. Here? Yes. Here. I'm sure you'll agree there's room at the inn. When? As soon as possible, tomorrow. We can't do that. Why not? In case you hadn't noticed, we have... We have cameras crawling all over the place. As it happens, I had noticed. Well, we can't afford to have my mother jeopardise this film. You know what she's like. A little eccentric, yes. No, more than that. She's not of our world, nor, frankly, suited to it. She's... She's been in institutions most of her adult life. She's not... She's not well. And with this film, appearances are vital. We need to be careful, very careful. No, the answer is no. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. My name's Edith Bowman, and this is the official podcast for the third season of the Netflix original series, The Crown, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved and diving deep into the stories. Today, we're talking about episode four, titled Bubbakins. In 1967, Princess Alice of Greece and Denmark came to live at Buckingham Palace, it was a chance for the deeply religious royal to reconnect with her son, Bubakins, or Prince Philip, to everyone else. We'll be talking in depth about the events in the episode, so if you haven't watched it yet, we suggest you do so now, or very soon. Coming up later, we'll hear all about Princess Alice from the incredible actor who played her, Jane Lapater. I love her. She was brave, compassionate, gutsy... A total individual. But first, I got together with executive producer Suzanne Mackey and lead director and executive producer Ben Caron to talk about why it was so important to feature Prince Philip's mother in the episode. Prince Philip had a very complex childhood and his mother had very complex mental health issues. Peter wanted to grapple with that, of course. Um, that became an extraordinary, in many ways, an unstoppable sort of background to his childhood, which which we really needed to examine and talk about. And mm. this episode, episode four of season three, Ben brings mother and son together again, which is obviously very poignant and very painful. And Prince Philip is very resistant to it mm. because she is uh, she represents part of his childhood that he wants to forget and I don't think he can contemplate embracing her back into the family he's 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 married to the queen of england it it to welcome her in is is hard for him mm. and yet she is his mother and she's deeply religious and what this episode beautifully provides us with is uh, and so many of the episodes, I think, of The Crown do this. They they start out with a sense of something quite, quite surreal, almost quite comedic, uh, a comedy juxtaposition of a smoking nun who might be slightly mad coming into the palace at the very time when Prince Philip is trying desperately to re reconfigure the, 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 the reputation, if you like, of the royal family in the public's eye. This is, could, could be the worst possible time. And it almost presents a, a, a farcical situation. And very quickly it becomes more serious, mm. more profound, more moving. Um, and it provides an opportunity then for not just reconciling Philip with his mother, but actually have Philip reconcile something deep within him and confront it, both uh, his childhood and 
also what his relationship is with with faith, with Mm. God, which is very important to her. Her presence at the palace threatens to derail the entire thing. Why are you so angry with her? I'm not angry. Yes, you are. You're furious. Have you even been to see her yet since she arrived? You haven't. Let me give you some advice. Stop patronising me. Stop interfering, stop meddling, just stop. You know nothing. I know that she's your mother. Technically, yes. What is that supposed to mean? It means she gave birth to me. She was never a mother. What I love about Jane and Tobias is that we see both of them, but we never actually see them together until the end. Yeah. That their distance is sort of represented throughout the film. So we go with Jane, we we go with Philip's character, who is, as you know, as Suzanne said, is trying to explain what the civil list is and trying to understand how much the royal family get paid and that we need to get paid more because we might have to give up our boat and and uh, and, and we sort of see this through the eyes of a of a journalist who is our kind of assassin lurking in the background who's about to sort of do a big expose of the royal family and should they be paid this amount of money why should they be paid this amount of money and you feel with Philip and this is you know Tobias has beautifully played this is that when she is brought back and he sees her from that window across the courtyard and she's been interviewed by the shame almost of that exposure of of that his mother's there and all, all those real feelings of the past I mean Philip is not someone you know those emotions don't naturally pour out of him in that way so we were sort of trying to find ways to represent that so you know in that scene he just opens the window and you sort of feel the air on his face and then we you know we go back into the flashback sequence and we sort of see that awful moment where his mother has been pulled away from him and you know put into a psychiatric care and 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 that gut-wrenching feeling is brought back to the present with Philip in that room, and you know, and then he walks into that, into that stilted scene where they're being filmed watching. It's like a sort of, and I love it. It's like a version of Gogglebox. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're being filmed watching television, and you know, you see Elizabeth look at him, and she knows something's not quite right that you know she's brought the mother back and they yeah. but they've hidden her away up in the attic somewhere because they go, you know they don't want to see each other, and it's just real pain. But at the same time. There's comedy there and the sort of the, you know, what do you want us to say, you know, in that, in that moment? Do you expect us to say something? Yes. Well, what? Would someone prepare something? Uh, I think the general idea is it'd be unscripted to reflect a normal evening. This is nothing like a normal evening. If it was a normal evening, we'd all be on our own in sad isolation in individual palaces. It wouldn't be crowded like this. This is like some kind of... Nightmare Christmas. Uh. One thing I wanted to ask about was was within this episode, obviously, Philip's seen as this kind of forward thinking, trying to kind of bring the royals up to date and he makes this decision about the documentary. Mm. You know, you're, you're, you're kind of recreating a film that was made of the royals and did you pay much attention to that? Having not seen it, I don't know. Well, I went to the BFI... <laughs> 
and I watched the documentary, <laughs> and uh, and we recreated it very faithfully. So there there is a barbecue where Philip and Anne are um, turning sausages on the barbecue. Um, Charles is, uh, although we didn't actually have Charles because we hadn't introduced him, so we we couldn't have him in this. He he's making a, a vinaigrette, and <laughs> and Queen Mother's having and a tipple. Queen Mum's having a tipple, and and Elizabeth is sort of is kind of going between everyone doing that. So so that was true. Um, but then it also has that sort of peppery voiceover underneath from the journalist. So it does that wonderful crown thing where it's you know can't let itself get too pleased with itself. It's yeah. going to sort of stick a you know a skewer in it to, yeah. to twist it a bit more. Well, it seems the documentary not only failed to achieve what I'd hoped for, it has somehow achieved the opposite. Instead of writing about what good value for money we represent, as commentators are united in their mockery of our our woodenness, our stupidity, uh, vanity, extravagance. Well, I did warn you. Do not say you warned me. I did. It was always a daft idea. It was always going to backfire. Is it really necessary for you to speak your mind quite so mercilessly at, at every opportunity? Well, where do you think I get that from? So what are you going to do? Actually, I was hoping we might talk about what you're going to do. I would like to offer you to the Manchester Guardian as the subject of a major in-depth profile. We think it's going to be an interview with Princess Anne, but it turns out to be an interview with Princess Alice, and and Philip reads that, and you think, well, you're not quite sure what he's thinking about it, and then it turns out it's, you know, it's a love letter to him yeah. explaining what happened, and then, you know, that becomes an apology from him and the first moments of a connection again between the mother and son, which, again, it just feels so relatable. It sets sets a sort of hair running for the rest of the season then for Philip because he has to then come to terms with, I suppose, with, with the concept of faith and that it, it has eluded him and that uh, he has to find it again, which we do as, you know, we go through the season. Mm. But also what I love about the end of that episode, that that final moment of reconciliation is beautifully portrayed from afar, but that actually we're not watching it, the Queen's watching it. Yeah. And the Queen is watching it in the knowledge that something in her husband will now be settled, yeah. that a wrong is being righted, that there, there will be peace. And again, so important for how we portray the Queen, because there's so many times we talk about the Russian doll and that she's buried her emotions and that... Um, publicly, at least, but actually to, to, to acknowledge a tenderness there and a and and also I think that kind of she, you know she she made the decision to to have Alice come yeah. to the palace and and which resulted in this you know horrendous fight resentment from her husband for doing so and then to, for that moment as well then to go I made the right choice yeah and it's such an underplayed response in Olivia's face yeah. in that mm, point as yeah. well in terms of it's, it's a very small smile but it's just yeah. Yeah, we it said it. so much yeah there's a real that. there's a beautiful dignity to it your majesty we're so happy to have you here with us safe and sound you're very kind too kind
Bubblekins? I'm afraid your dear son is indisposed at the moment. We're in the middle of having a film made. What? It doesn't matter. He'll come and visit you soon. You must be tired. We'll find someone to take you to your room. Now we'll hear from someone who not only knows all there is to know about Princess Alice, but played her beautifully in the episode two, Jane Lapater. Jane, thank you so much for being here today. And also thank you for bringing your very own framed picture of Princess Alice. That's extraordinary. She lives in my sitting room. I love that. I've never really let her go. Why would you? I love her. She was the most maligned, maltreated and underrated member of the royal family ever. She's the jewel in the crown. What did you know about her, if anything, before? Nothing. Wow. I mean, I'd me never too. Me even, too. Yeah, is that, lots of people say that. Yeah. And in fact, one of the producers sent me a tweet that people had shared what a great character they thought she was, but she'd probably only get a walk-on part in The Crown. Well, it's not a walk-on part. (laughs) And I am so privileged, and I really mean that, and honoured to have walked in her shoes, especially with a script as good as Peter Morgan's Mm. and a director as absolutely edible as Ben Caron. (laughs) I love her. Why? She was brave, compassionate, gutsy, a total individual. Her detractors may have called her eccentric. This is a woman who was born in Windsor Castle, who married Prince Andrew of Greece and Denmark when she was 18 and was very much in love with him. She had been born deaf, completely deaf. The royal family made no allowances for her. She lip-read in Greek, English and German. Wow. When they had to escape Greece, she was described as schizophrenic. I suspect, actually, what she had was a nervous breakdown. Yeah. And who wouldn't, having to leave their home? She was put in an asylum for two and a half years. Oh, my God. And she was treated by Sigmund Freud, who thought her problem, well, he would, wouldn't he, was too much libido. (laughs) So he zapped her ovaries with radiation to bring on the menopause. Oh, my, it's barbaric. Absolutely barbaric. After two and a half years... She lived incognito in B&Bs in Germany. She sold her royal heirloom jewellery, went back to Greece and opened a convent where she trained local girls to look after the sick and the poor. It was Greek Orthodox, but it wasn't affiliated Mm. to Greek Orthodoxy. She ran it in her own eccentric, wonderful way. And as if that wasn't enough, when the Nazis occupied Athens during the Second World War, she housed a family of Jewish people and just played dumb 
that she didn't understand what the Nazis were saying. Because she was, the Gestapo came and interviewed yes, her, didn't they? yes. And she had them in the convent, hidden. And in fact, she won posthumously the highest award that Israel ever gives to a non-Jew called Righteous Among Nations. And there's a lovely story attached to that, which isn't in the series. She wanted to be buried on the Mount of Olives. The Queen had insisted, when things got hairy in Greece again, that she come to England. Mm. She didn't want to leave the convent. And she arrived at Buckingham Palace when she was 80, having scrubbed floors like all the other nuns. And, of course, when she died two years later in Buckingham Palace, she couldn't be buried on the Mount of Olives because they'd just got over the Six-Day War in Israel. Mm. So she was kept at Windsor Castle. And when the time was considered not dangerous anymore, Mm. Prince Charles flew out with her coffin and she's buried with the Russian Orthodox on the Mount of Olives. And about 18 months ago, Prince William went to visit her grave. Oh, wow. That sends chills down my spine there. That's extraordinary. So you can see why I love her. I can see, and I want a film about her. It's like, oh, what? Me too. <laughs> <laughs> what an extraordinary story that you yes. can't, um, you know, thing after thing, experience after experience that is and thrown at this woman. Wonderful little touches about her. She smoked a lot and she played <laughs> canasta. That was the one thing I didn't manage to master was the canasta. Everything else absolutely and nailed the it. The only kind of grudge I've got with Peter Morgan is I wanted a scene where I come back as a ghost and haunt the Queen Mother. <laughs> So he had the two mother-in-laws together. <laughs> yeah, playing canasta. <laughs> Where did you start to to find out about her and how did you find out about her? Because like you say, you didn't know anything about her before. No, I, no well, she's one of the people that the royal family have brushed under the carpet, a bit like Prince John. Yeah, so where did you start? I read everything I could. I mean, the Crown has the most extraordinary research department, but I have to do it myself. Yeah because only an actor knows the kind of information that's going to be useful to them. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm an actor who works from the inside out. If I know, eventually, after I've read everything I can lay my hands on, watched every film, looked at every photograph, months and months I spent, um, then I will know how she walks. Yeah. And how she moves. Yeah. Because my research will inform that. It's not something I decide. Because she was very vulnerable mentally. She was very vulnerable. Yeah. But I am deaf. Not as deaf as, as Princess Alice was. But there was a moment in filming when we were filming, as it were, in Buckingham Palace. Yeah at Elstree, and everybody started to look at me. And I thought, what's gone wrong? What's gone wrong? (laughs) And I hadn't heard the first shout action. (laughs) So it was really quite funny. (laughs) I said, I'm deaf. (laughs) 
<laughs> Wave at me to tell me it's action. <laughs> they but... were round the corner and I just hadn't heard them. You know, there's a, there's this idea that she was misunderstood as well in terms of particularly with her son. And it's wonderful to watch that reconciliation. Hopefully well, I watch this. I'm a foster child. And my mother left me in this country with the woman who had been her foster mother. And my mother hopped it back to France. So I know what it's like not to have a mother. Yeah. It's a basic psychological... I don't want to call it a flaw, but it's the most fundamental of childhood hurts. I remember one of the Queen's relatives saying that when Prince Philip had come to stay with her, she'd asked him to sign the guest book and he'd put Philip of no fixed abode. Oh, wow. Now, I don't suppose he knew that she was under lock and key in an asylum. Yeah. I don't suppose he knew that she was having radiation for so-called libido problems. Yeah. Or that she lived in B&Bs for years until she got all her jewellery together. If you are born deaf, you are very vulnerable psychologically. I once worked in a television series with a deaf child... And his mother explained that unless you actually make an effort to involve someone who's born deaf, they can become mentally mm. very vulnerable indeed. I mean, I had to walk down a street, as it were, in Athens, with tanks and tyres burning and men with rifles and... Lots of Spanish extras not knowing what language I was speaking. <laughs> Unfortunately, I speak a bit of Spanish. And one of them came up to me and said, what language are you speaking? I said, it's Greek. This is Athens, right? <laughs> Just for today. Pelcon. <laughs> One of the things that you did do was you had a, a Greek dialect coach to help you with because it, when we first meet her, you speak fluent Greek. She's chatting away, and it's you. I mean, I had the most bravo. wonderful. Oh no, <laughs> it's all down to Yana Vasilaki because when we first met this young, beautiful girl, very bright, who got five degrees, I said, Yana, I don't want you to be kind. I don't want you to be nice. I don't want you to say, well, it's sort of all right. I want you to fall on me like a ton of bricks. We worked for. Hours and uh, I mean, having to remember a language you don't understand is quite, but I wrote it all out and she helped me write it all out phonetically. Yeah, she was worth her weight in gold, and it was a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that we're not propagating a myth that an actor becomes the character. Yeah, I put it like this you are the channel through which this person speaks. And as Helena Bonham Carter has already said, you have an extra responsibility when you're playing somebody who actually lived. Yeah. 
I mean, I used to go away in corners and say, please forgive me, Alice, if I've made a wrong decision there. Oh, I think she'd be incredibly proud of your portrayal of her. Well, I'm proud of her. Yeah. She leaves a, a lasting impression when, you know, when she's, when we meet her and when we spend time with her in the, in this particular episode. Uh, when she's saying goodbye, when you're saying goodbye to the nuns, when she has been, you know, kind of summoned to Buckingham Palace, she doesn't want to leave. And that scene as she's saying goodbye, but then on the plane, oh, it's so emotional. That was my first day of filming. Was it? <laughs> In Spain. Yeah. That place has been her home. Mm. And the set design is absolutely miraculous because in a previous scene with Princess Anne, I was telling her about the rain coming through the roof, which, of course, she, Alice, couldn't hear. But she said, Costas, the, um, you know, like the janitor of the place, yeah. had said it sounded like an orchestra tuning up, the water falling into the metal buckets. And when I got to the convent in the middle of Spain, they had bothered to go up to the ceiling and put green wet mould on the ceiling and there were buckets on the floor to catch the water. And that was from an improvisation. It wasn't anything to do with the script. Wow! I have to say it's the happiest unit I've ever worked with. Really? Now, a lot of that has to do with Ben Caron as a director. He was an actor. He understands Mm. actors. And a lot of it is because Peter Morgan gives you such wonderful material to work with. But also, Alice is the best role I've had since I had a brain injury. And in a way... It was a kind of gift from God, if you like, to play Alice. Mm. Because I know about being deaf. I know about being odd. There are times I say things and people look at me and I think, uh-oh, brain injury time, better go home. <laughs> but the one thing that hasn't been affected is my memory. So I have no trouble learning lines. The only trouble I have is with distance. And so the youngsters, the runners on the set, um, if I had to get down from a dais or a chair, they were there instantly. And like most 74-year-olds, I have glaucoma. So going from the lights into the dark, they were there to take me, but I've never been so well looked after in my life. And the day I finished filming, I got back home. There was no one to help me up the stairs. <laughs> no one to hold my shopping bags. It's unique. I've never experienced such ease and comfort and a sense of everybody working together. Mm. That's not just actors' gush. I really mean it. Mm. And even... Well, I spent a a long morning once talking to one of the guys who was playing an equerry who stood on the steps of Buckingham Palace. And he was as involved in it as people with great lead. And, of course, the leads, well, they just are them. I mean, I was so blessed with Tobias Menzies. Let's talk about that because... It was a real relationship. It was a real moment where they didn't have a relationship and then they did. Can we well, talk- the first time I did it, Edith, I got it so wrong. Really? The first In what time way? I saw Philip, 
I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. It was Snotsville. <laughs> and Ben said, can we play it slightly differently? <laughs> he said, you just played it as if it were your son. He said, let's play it differently. So it's thanks to Ben the scene is as moving as it is. Because I, I had to fight to hold the tears back. But Tobias is Philip. Do you know what I want to know? I want to know when when you and Philip, Tobias, are having going for your little walk, what were you talking about? We talked <laughs> we talked like um Alice and Philip would Did have you? talked. Yes. Oh, I love that. I said, gosh, it's windy, isn't it, out here? And he offered me his arm. And that just made my heart come into my mouth because that wasn't scripted. Was it not? And it was so... It was like all those years of separation. And no mother is separated from her children without thinking of them every hour of every day. Mm -hmm. She came over to England for the wedding. Oh, I won't tell you a lovely story about that. She came over for the coronation and she came over for the wedding. And... I think it was for the coronation. The coronation came after the wedding and she was in her nun's habit by then, but she had it made by Balmain in Paris. <laughs> That's, That's what I love about her. Okay, I'm going to be a nun, but I'm going to have the best nun's outfit going. <laughs> I, I hope mean, that you got Balmain to make your... No, I'm no. afraid I didn't. I got the, oh, the costume was brilliant. Oh, it was. Designer, she'd made little darn holes in the pockets. And I wore Clark's sandals circa 1950. And the leather had all dried and stiffened. They were agony ivy. My bunions really gave me a bad time walking down that street in Spain. I mean, Athens. <laughs> yeah. Amy Roberts, the costume designer. Wonderful designer. Wonderful. Did you, was there an opportunity to to work together on... on Oh, yes. I mean, I first met Amy and she showed me the material, which I thought was brilliant, because it wasn't dull grey. It had a kind of blue light to it. The headpiece was hard to wear, especially as the bands went over my hearing aids. Yeah. But Alice didn't care what she looked like. And so I and I wore no makeup, no makeup at all. So it was a joy getting into the location in the morning, into my van, into my nun's habit and my sandals, picking up her cigarettes, the hat on, <laughs> and over the stocking top, and I was ready to fly. <laughs> I love the scene with Princess Alice and Princess Anne, Erin um, Doherty, who plays. Uh, she was great. We were having the scene in my bedroom in Buckingham mm-hmm. Palace and I was telling her about the leaks in the ceiling of the convent and how we needed to raise money. And I was smoking and she just took the cigarette <laughs> off me and had a puff. <laughs> and I was so kind of... I thought, oh, no, I mustn't notice it because Alice wouldn't care. Yaya's been telling me the most incredible stories about her life. Has she? I just came to make sure you had everything you need. Please. Oh, yes. I have more than everything. But her convent doesn't. Darling, sure. It needs £200 for the roof. Really? It's true. And £300 for new medicine and beds. So we're busy writing to patrons and benefactors asking for money. 
The palace writing paper. We think it could help. It's lovely to hear that you're, you know, that you're allowed to, to play with the character and with your colleagues. It's not just about doing what's on the script. It has to have the directors say so, of mm-hmm. course. And as long as you're serving the character, not being ego-led, then you can't make any mistakes. I do admit to taking my quaff. It's not called a wimple, dear, it's called a quaff. <laughs> taking it off when I went outside the convent in Spain to have a fag because and I hid the crucifix because I thought I didn't want to be disrespectful <laughs> to the local ca- and I've got the crucifix have you Amy let me have the crucifix and that hangs on my sitting room window right near my picture of Alice well faith is a big thing faith saved her really didn't it and it's it's that conversation that she has with Philip in terms of if as your mother I can tell you one thing it's find Find a faith, find something. I think that's a really good point that you brought up, Edith. It's very difficult to talk about faith nowadays because we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. As Carl Gustav Jung said in the 60s, there is an area of the human brain that is necessarily spiritual. I'm not talking about religion Mm -hmm. and all those religions who've caused wars. Yes, we all know about that. But we are more than flesh and blood. We are spirit and soul. And when you look outside there, you can see what's happened to a world that has forgotten soul. Mm -hmm. Because this, the crown has been this phenomenon... There's so much interest in our monarchy and Peter has done this wonderful job of dramatising real people, real events. And what was your expectation going into being part of that family? And then what was the reality of it? Did you have any expectation of no, what it would I be didn't, like? No, I didn't, Edith, no. What I had was fear. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, it doesn't get any easier the older you get. You know, every job you start again from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I did know I'd got quite a lot of scenes in Greek to do, which was a bit (laughs) of a hurdle to get over to begin with. And also I knew I was playing a loose cannon. You know, she was very much a loose cannon, not consciously. Yeah. But in a way that allowed me wonderful freedom. Mm -hmm. I was thrilled to bits that Nina Gold had asked to see me. I'm so glad that you got the part and I'm so glad that you've been able to share her story. I've loved her and thank you for asking me to come along to do this because I feel she hasn't had a voice. I think we need to get Peter to write a film about her, surely. Shall we ask? Yes. Please. (laughs) That would be awfully good. Let this be a mother's gift to her child. And one piece of advice. Find yourself a faith. It helps, no. 
It's everything. Looks like it's clearing up. What do you say? A walk? I'm Edith Bowman, and my special thanks to our guests on this episode, Jane Lapeterre, Ben Caron, and Suzanne Mackey. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and Something Else, in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of episode five, where the Queen reflects on what life could have been without the crown. This is how I'd like to spend all my time. Owning horses, breeding horses, racing horses, it's what makes me truly happy. And I actually think it's what I was born to do until the other thing came along. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.